All right, grab your Bibles and, and make your way to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. I'll get there myself. I love Luke 22. There's so much history. Uh, of course, we understand that Luke was a physician and uh, also a historian. And he wrote the book of the letter of Luke and also Acts. And uh, another interesting thing about Luke is he was a Gentile, not a Jew. And some folks don't realize this, but he wrote more of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. Because if you put Acts and Luke together, there's more volume than anything that Paul wrote put together. So kind of fascinating and interesting, especially to the Jewish mindset that God would use a Gentile and then give him more pages of Scripture <laughs> in the New Testament than anybody else. But uh, I appreciate Luke's accuracy as he was giving an account Actually, the, the letter of Acts is kind of part two to Luke. He's writing to the same official uh, named Theophilus. Um, so it's just his account of Jesus from the very beginning to even afterwards and the start of the church through the book of Acts as you walk that through. So it's some very fascinating history that actually covers a, a, a lot of years um, from the birth of Christ all the way through probably the first 20 years or so of the church. So it's a, it's a pretty good chunk of history. So him being an historian, um, we get to see this from his eyes. I want to focus, though, just on verses 14 through 20. Are those, that should be the next thing. So let's look at verse 14 there together with me. Uh-oh. Okay. I don't know what he's saying. All right, well, while they work on that, you got your Bibles in front of you. Here's what it says. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said... Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Interesting to note there, just if you take the Bible glasses off a minute, you notice there's two cups of wine. There's the first, actually there's four. Uh, Luke mentions two of the four. Um, the cup that he takes after supper is the third cup, and it's a cup of redemption. And that's the one that we use to remember the blood of Christ as we were redeemed out of Egypt. Um, but I want to focus my attention this morning with you in a, for a few moments um, on verse number 19. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it 
and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, the word remember, the word remember shows up 132 times in the Old Testament. 132. Here's a couple of them. Uh, Psalm 25, 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Right? Remember. Uh, Psalm 106, 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So this word, remember, 132 times in the Old Testament. Now, this was, I found this interesting. In the New Testament, it shows up 31 times. That's kind of significant. If you think about it, 31 days in a month, 31 times this word. Now, remember, it, doesn't always, it always, isn't always in a, in a direct context of, of our salvation, but often it is. Here's a few of those examples in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Anybody thankful for that verse this morning? Revelation 3.3. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So this idea of remembering, why, why, do, why are we commanded here to remember? I think maybe it's because we so easily forget. Um, and we don't forget on purpose. We forget because of this world that we live in draws our attention. Something that was said in D group this morning is not important enough to us to remember. Right? I remember I would say that to my kids. I would tell them to do something. They say, oh, I forgot. I said, no, it just wasn't important enough to you to remember. Right? Benjamin Franklin said this, Tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, involve me and I learn. You know, Jesus did all of those things. He told the disciples, he taught them, but then he involved them, even in this thing of the Last Supper. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, A good character is the best tombstone. Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when forget-me-nots have withered. And then he said this, carve your name on hearts, not on marble. Yes. Right? And Jesus did that. He carved his name on our hearts. And he calls us to remember. Now, when Jesus wanted to give his disciples um, a way of understanding the gospel, a way of understanding the sacrifice and what was about to happen to him, he doesn't give them a theory he doesn't even give them a sermon, which he preached a lot of those. Instead, think about this, he gives them an act to perform. He gives them something to do. He involves them physically in the real world. And he says, let this physical act remind you of what I have done for you. 
So specifically, he gives them this Passover meal and these specific two elements. And it speaks volumes in a way a theory never could, doesn't it? Even to us today. And the best way of finding out what it says is, of course, to do it. And so Jesus involves them. It's, just, it's something Christ has commanded us to do, such as the commands to love one another and to, and to go and make disciples of all nations. These are, these are the commands. And this command to remember stands to this day. In other words, Jesus says, when you do this, when you take this cup and this bread, it's going to help you to remember me. It's going to help you to remember what I have done for you. You know what? I think Jesus knew how easily we would forget and get distracted by this world that we live in. It's almost as if time just wipes everything out. Have you ever wondered about that? Time just, time just erases things like the sponge on a chalkboard, just wiping those memories away. And we, that's why we don't need to have a lot of time in between remembering Christ. Amen? That's why we have this service at the beginning of every single month, to start the month off remembering what Jesus said. Because Jesus knew that in the rush of life, we would have this tendency to forget Him and what He's done for us and who He is. And the power of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he's acting as our defense attorney. Anyone glad you got Jesus as your defense attorney this morning? So we come today to remember. Um, and somewhere, we don't, I don't really understand this, but I bet you have it too. There's a neurological link between food and memory. For example, I can smell pizza cooking, and it takes me right back to a little place in Summers, Connecticut called Colony Villa, uh, where, where I worked and made hundreds of pizzas every Friday night. Um, and it takes me right back, and it's the smell and the taste of that pizza that takes me back to my, my childhood. They, they, they call this food triggers. It's distinctive tastes or smells that immediately carry us back to another time. Um, another smell, which is uh, most of you have not had the wonderful privilege of, of smelling this glorious aroma, is a breakfast sausage in our ethnic family, a Polish breakfast sausage called kiszka. And it is a glorious thing. And whenever I smell it, it immediately takes me back to my childhood, to the childhood farm uh, and walking in there at breakfast time, and, and it's, it's a pretty strong uh, smell as it's cooking. And if you're not among the initiated, you would find it repulsive. Uh, but those of us that, that uh, grew up in that culture absolutely love it. Um, and it just takes, as soon as I smell it, it takes me back to that farm. Coming in from pheasant hunting in the morning and smelling that kishka cooking and knowing that there were some runny eggs that were going to go with that. Uh, it's just a glorious thing. Um, so it's those food triggers, right? And Jesus sets up a food trigger here to remember that when you eat this bread and drink of this cup, it's to be a trigger for your memory. But there is a way in which we can be said 
to live our entire lives in a haze of forgetfulness. Isn't that true? We forget the most important things. As a biblical scholar once said that one of the most important things being a Christian is to practice memory in a world of amnesia. I like that. To practice memory in a world of amnesia. So with this element, this I'm going to call it a remembrance tool, um, we look backward in history. We look inward to our hearts, our souls, the lives that we're living right now, and we look forward to eternity with the full revealing of our Lord and our King. So with that in mind, let's do those three things. Let's look backward, inward, and forward as we prepare our hearts to remember the Lord Jesus Christ through these food triggers, this bread, this everyday bread and everyday juice of the fruit of the vine of grapes. We remember the body and blood of Jesus. When I say looking backward, um, that's in your outline. Uh, it's, it's the past shadow of the body of Christ. So everything that happens in the Old Testament is in shadow form that looks forward to who? To Jesus himself. He's a type. All of these things, every feast in the Old Testament, all of the actions, all of those uh, uh, laws, even the civil laws and the ceremonial law, all of those things were a shadow of the substance that was going to be Jesus Christ. And we understand that it's easier for us as we look backward because Jesus has already been here and fulfilled all of that, right? But I want to take you back, way back, to remind you of how this works. So you're going to need to get your Bibles out because I guess that screen isn't working. Um, and so to start, I want you to go to the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. All right, we're going to start in the book of Leviticus, and then we're going to move around a little bit. Um, let me take you back to the beginning of where this comes from and why bread, why the body, and what does this all mean to you and I today? What is the significance of this trigger that Jesus intended us to have when we took this bread at this specific memorial uh, feast that we're going to share here in just a moment? we got to go back even further than Leviticus. We go back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when our first parents sinned? And then God showed up when He always shows up. If nothing else, God's consistent. Amen? <laughs> it's the cool of the day, the evening time, He shows up. And where are they? They're hiding. It's the first game of hide-and-seek. And, seek. and uh, you never want to play hide-and-seek with God because He always knows where you are. And what had Adam and Eve done? <coughs> what had they done as soon as they sinned? Anyone remember? What did they make? They made clothes out of what? Fig leaves, right? Uh, to cover themselves because they realized that they were naked. And that's how this whole thing plays out. What does God do after he settles everything? What does God do for them about their clothing? Yeah, he covers them with skins. He makes proper clothes for them out of skins. And there's significance in that. Because skins belong on things that have what's called nephish life in the Bible, in the Hebrew, the, that have breath in them. And whatever that animal was, we don't know if it was a lamb. It may have actually have been. Uh, because the sacrificial system carries out. Adam and Eve learned from that. And we can see that in their own children. When it comes time to sacrifice to the Lord. Abel knows to bring a lamb, right? 
So we see that this living thing is, is killed and its, and it's uh, uh, skin is used to make coverings for Adam and Eve. So then we fast forward to see this unpacked a little bit in history. It's in the book of Leviticus. Look at Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3, talking about the, the burnt offering for sin. Um, you get back up to verse 1. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice, now that would be for a case of sin, of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before the Lord. So remember, at this point, we're dealing with a tabernacle. The temple's not built yet, right? So their, their place to meet with God was a massive tent. Now, verse 4 is what I really want you to look at. Here's what happens. And so many of us don't understand this history and how it appoints to Jesus. Verse 4. Then, so he's got this lamb or goat or bull, and he, he's, he's at the, he's at the, the, the door of the tent of meeting, so he's right there on the on the on the inside. Then he's then verse four. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Can you picture this? So you're coming, either you or someone in your family has sinned, and you're bringing this offering. So you, as the head of your home, and that's how God respects headship. If if it, were, if it was your wife who sinned, guess who brings the offering? The husband. God never deviates from his program. And we just went through that new you at home, right? And our different jobs. Wives submit, husbands love, children obey, fathers don't provoke. Servants obey your masters. Masters be kind. Remember, remember this we just went through in Colossians? This is God's order. He never deviates. So whoever is the head of that household brings this animal. Now notice what he says. He shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering now, don't miss this. And it will be accepted on his behalf to make, what's that word? Atonement for him. Atonement. What does that mean? Well, we understand that through progressive revelation what that means. It means that when that man, that head of household, put his head, his hands, his hand on top of that animal's head, God transfers the sin that necessitated that sacrifice to that animal. Now, did that animal sin? Did that animal commit the sin? No. And then when you see what happens, look at verse number four, um, or actually verse number five. So he's got his hand on, on the head. Now look at this. So the sin passes to the animal, which the, animals, the animal is not guilty, but God passes the sin from the family to the animal. Now look at this. And he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So, so imagine this. I know, I know this offends our modern sensibilities. But somebody commit, breaks the law of God in your house. And you bring that lamb or goat or bull. You put his hands, your hands on its head. The sins are moved from the offending party. From the sins of the family are moved from the family to the, to the animal. Now, now think about this for a minute. And then that man 
is to take a knife and slit the throat of that animal. Now, most of you have probably never done that. Can you imagine what that's like? Uh, that really must have been something else. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I'm reading a, a book of his uh, Reflections on the Psalms, which is very, very good. But he, he said in there, um, every ancient temple smelled like a slaughterhouse. And in, even the pagan temples. But the, the temple of God, was, uh, the tabernacle of God was no different. We come in here so cleaned up and sanitized, right? It was a bloody mess. And that God planned it that way. And you know why? He wanted you to see the price of sin. Sin is visceral. There is a horrible price for our sin. I mean, can you imagine being that man and having to run that razor-sharp blade over the throat of that animal as that blood and the life gushes out of that animal? And it gets worse than that if you want to keep on reading. Then he has to help the priests and Aaron's boys literally skin it and cut it in pieces. It's a lot of work. Hey, maybe, maybe if we went back to that, we would sin less because of the work and expense involved. The whole idea here is look at this. I, God, God in his kindness allows for the sin of that family to be transferred onto that innocent animal to make atonement. God is satisfied in the death of the animal instead of the death of those, the eternal death of those people. This is a gift of God. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So that's the backward glance. We see an innocent animal and a guilty family. We see hands being placed on this innocent animal. And God in his kindness, transferring the sin of the family to the innocent animal. The animal shedding its blood in the place of the family. You have substitution and atonement, which we come up with that beautiful doctrine of the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. He dies in our place and he atones. He bears the wrath of God. The wages of sin is what, church? Death. And this is what we are to remember Fast forward, but still look backward. Jot this down. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us He Himself, Jesus, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in His own, in His own body. Did you get that? On the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were, past tense, healed. Did you all see what just happened there in 1 Peter 2.24? By the way, 1 Peter 2.24, you all need to memorize that. That needs to be one that's in your memory banks. Because every time the enemy comes and tells you how bad you are, instead of arguing with him, you just quote back to him 1 Peter 2.24. We need to be reminded that Jesus bore our sins where? In his body on that tree. Same thing. God transfers our sins to the literally into the body of His Son. Do y'all see the significance? All every bull, lamb, and goat in the Old Testament, hundreds of probably millions by the time we get to, to Jesus Christ. 
were nothing but a shadow of what was going there. All was a dress rehearsal for the great drama that would unfold in 33 A.D. As Jesus voluntarily lays down his life on that cross, the sins of everyone who would repent and believe in Christ are placed into him through the act of God on the cross. And he bears our sin. And as his life's blood is poured out, sin is forgiven. Sacrifice accepted, empty tomb on the third day. Isn't that a glorious truth this morning, church? So just as the lamb bore the sin of the family, the lamb of God bears the sins of the world. Do you see it? What a beautiful backwards glance to help us remember that when we take this nice clean little piece of cracker we're going to have here in just a minute, nice and clean, we take this pasteurized little mini cup of grape juice, nothing nasty about it, remember the cross. A horrific scene of execution. Remember that God put every one of our sins, don't miss this, past, present, and what, church? And he places them into Jesus, in his body. He bore our sins in his body on that tree. He shed his life's blood pours out on Calvary. The Father accepts it. The Son is buried. Three days later, as the Father's stamp of approval, that the picture is fully rendered Sin is fully forgiven. Jesus is resurrected. Life, I can't even imagine this. Breath and heartbeat begin again. Jesus rises from that tomb and bursts out of that grave victorious. And for 40 days, he walks this earth. And he's seen by hundreds of people. He's handled and we remember by this backward look. We also, though, are to look inward. That's inside at our own hearts as we come to these elements. We look backward and we see the atonement. My sin placed into the body of Jesus. Jesus suffering, dying, paying that eternal debt in six hours on a cross. We see all of this. But because of that, we must look inside. And I say that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 28, 30, that, we should, that a man should examine himself before we take of the Lord's table. You better look inside. And this examination, this is very, oftentimes preached inaccurately. It was specifically about your relationship with other Christians. They were blowing it in the church. The rich people were coming early. They did a fellowship meal too, only they did theirs before the communion. Right? And the rich people were getting there early and eating all their good food. And then the poor Christians came and all they had was macaroni and cheese and that's all that was left. And God was deeply offended by that. And God said, you're not living in a right relationship with your fellow Christians. And Paul says, you better look inside and examine yourself. You better make sure that God is not upset with the way that you're living before you come to this table. And Paul said, if you don't believe me, that's how, you know those people that have died recently and the other ones that are sick right now? It's because of that. That's God's judgment. This is, this is a holy table. It is to be respected. 
And we are to look inward. We look backward and see Christ, the Lamb of God, who bore our sins in his body on the cross. And we see that he bridges the gap and heals this cancer of sin that made us the enemies of God. And he brings peace between us and God. And because of that, don't miss it, we must extend the same peace, the same forgiveness to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must live in harmony. That's why we need to do this regularly, to keep our accounts clear before God, our accounts with each other. How are you doing in your relationships with other people? You holding grudges? You treating them in sinful ways? You need to repent of that before you come up and get these elements today. God takes that seriously. It wasn't just a first century issue. It's an issue today. Do you believe that? We look backward for our atonement. We look inward for our self-examination and let God say, God, I love how David said it in Psalm uh, 139. Search me and know me. Point out anything in me that offends you. That's a good prayer to pray today. Lord, what is there in me that offends you? Then lead me along the path to everlasting life. But we also look forward. We look backward. We look inward. But we also this meal causes us, this remembrance looks forward. Now, that seems kind of weird to say, doesn't it? We remember the future. Right? I was talking to my daughter yesterday about the movie Back to the Future. And we were talking about how that doesn't make sense. This is kind of like Back to the Future. We look back to the future. Right. Um, and what is the future of Jesus becoming my sin? His blood, the ransom price for all of my sin, past, present and future. Well, the future is a glorious one because of this. And we remember that in these elements today. We remember the glory of our salvation. It has a future focus because our sins are all gone. They're dead and they're buried with a dead savior covered by his shed blood. And the eternal life is ours through faith and repentance. And that's assured of us in Christ's resurrection and ascension that we have eternal life in Christ. How many of you know today that you have right now eternal life in Christ? John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His one and only son that whoever, you, me, anybody, whoever would believe in him, would not perish, now, now notice the tense here, but have, present tense, eternal life. When, do we, when does our eternal life start? It does not start when you die. It started when you were resurrected in Christ, amen? When God arrested your soul and convinced you of your sin and caused you to hate your sin and you turned away from it, and you rejected your sin, and you clung to your Savior in faith. Do you all remember that day and that moment that God did that for your soul? That moment that God arrested your soul and, and spoke eternal life into you, that's when your eternity started. You have eternal life, currently, present tense. That's why when you die, it's just a continuation. Right? Oh, we're so scared of dying. We're so scared of death. And I think God gives us the Lord's table to remind us that death is powerless to the believer. Tomorrow I'll meet with um, some homeschool parents and one of the breakout sessions I'm going to do with them is um, on logic, get, preparing them to teach their, their children 
their eighth grade children. Can you imagine this? Aristotelian logic. Um, it's a scary thing. So the title of my breakout session is, is taking the fangs and claws out of logic. So I'm kind of dumbing it down for the parents to say, this is not as scary as it sounds. There's like three basic things you need to understand. And here's how you can teach this to your eighth grader and why it's important. You know what Jesus did on the cross? He took the fangs and claws out of sin. <laughs> Didn't he? Then he took the fangs and cloth out of, claws out of dying. We're so scared to die. And I know why. Because we've never done it before. But, but brothers and sisters, we have an historical record of people who have died. And we know what comes next. There is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get it not when you die. You get it when you die, your old you dies and the new you is resurrected in Jesus Christ. Eternal life starts. And you wake up where you've always been. What a beautiful and a glorious truth that is. This new life in Christ that comes through the, the body and the blood of Jesus, this, this resurrection rescue speaks to the future. How confident can we live if we really believe that? How confident could we live if we really believed that God really forgave every one of our sins, past, present, and future, and that we were clean and free to love and serve Him, and that when it's all over, we're going to be with Him forever? How would that change your life today? And if it doesn't, then that hasn't happened to you yet. And I pray that it does. Changes everything. Once upon a time, there were two twin boys conceived in the same womb. Weeks passed by and twins began to develop and their awareness began to grow. And they laughed with joy and said, isn't it great that we were conceived? Isn't it great that we're alive? And the twins explored their world together. As they found their mother's cord that gave them life, they sang for joy. How great is our mother's love that she shares her own life with us. Weeks stretched into months, and the twins started to notice just how much each of them were changing. What does this mean? One twin asked the other. It means that our stay in this world is coming to an end, the other one said. But I don't want to go. I want to stay here forever, the first twin replied. I don't think we have a choice, said the other. But maybe there's life after birth, the other one said. No, we will shed our cord. How is it possible that we will live without it, replied the other. Besides, we've seen evidence of others who've come before us and gone on, yet none of them have come back to show us that there's life beyond. No, my brother, this is the end. And so the other twin fell into deep despair, saying, If conception ends at birth, what's the purpose of the womb? It's meaningless. Maybe there's no mother after all. But there has to be, the other protestant. How else do we get here? And how do we even stay alive? Well, maybe she's just a figment of our imagination. Maybe we made her up because the idea made us feel good, the first twin said. And so their last days in the womb were filled with deep questioning and a lot of fear. Finally, the moment of birth arrived. 
And when the twins had passed on from their world, they opened their eyes and cried for what they saw. That's going to be us. <laughs> we think that's, this is all there is. We're going to open our eyes and cry for what we see. Here in this place today, with, with our brothers and sisters, we will come to this table and we will remember. We will take a backward look and remember how it all started. A lamb, a bull, a goat, sin, a representative head, hands placed on that animal's head, a sharp blade run across his throat. His body shudders as his life pours out onto the ground. Fast forward, a beaten and bloodied Christ nailed to a cross. Rejected. Sky goes dark. Six hours. He spends on a cross. It equals an eternity under the wrath of God. It is finished. Spear thrust. Blood and water flow. Pagan pronouncement made. Surely this man was the son of God. Rushed into a tomb. Sealed. Three days later, called back to life, seen by hundreds, handled, ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father to defend the likes of you and I. We look back and remember this. We look in and say, because he was so gracious to me, how dare I not be gracious to my brothers and sisters and those God's given me to love. And we look forward to the future because of the death, the burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. When it's all over here, it just begins there. And Jesus says, remember me. Do this and remember me, says the Lord. And as we go about these everyday actions of eating and drinking, we know in a way that can't really be put into words that Jesus is right here with us. We look back, we look in, and we look ahead as we remember. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus teaches us. And so we shall.